You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. song means it is time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis Day. And you know, Don, when I got up this morning, we had breakfast, we looked at the weather report, it said it was going to top out at 64 degrees. I'd suck. That's more. That's what it is that's, right now. It's exactly going to be more. It's going to top out at 67, according to the current update. With the humidity that was a big change in 50, a couple hours. 52%. And wind speed is what they like to call calm. Visibility is unlimited. And we're going up to a high today of 67 degrees, which is a little warmer than average for this time of year. Average high temperature in November would actually be 63. So we're going to be fairly normish. Compared to the last week, <laughs> night, temperature, <laughs> night temperature is 45, Friday 68, Friday night 44. Saturday, though, bumping back up into the 70s, 74 on Saturday and sunny. Oh, my goodness, it's going to be busy. Uh, Saturday night, that's all I look at. I look at what's the temperature on Saturday and know how my week is going to go. Saturday <laughs> night, 45 degrees. Sunday, 75 degrees. Sunday night, 45. Monday, 76 degrees. So, Basically, temperatures going up into the mid-70s and nights staying in the 40s. No frost on the horizon. Uh, no rain on the horizon. So we're, we've got a – we had some clouds this morning. That's just offshore air pushing in. That was just the, uh, the coastal marine layer coming in over us in the morning. And then it's clearing up and getting lovely and sunny out there and a little bit breezy. You can expect cooler temperatures for the next couple of days and some north winds as we get towards the weekend. Um, so those are a little bit of a concern, particularly in the fire area. Highs will be a warm back up into the 70s to lower 80s over the weekend across the Central Valley, which is – 10 to 20 degrees above average, with some, as they like to say here when weathermen get jaunty, daily records in jeopardy. <laughs> it might get a little higher than, than uh, they might break some record temperatures, especially if we hit around 80 further up north. That is the awfully warm, high. warm, dry start to the fall, to put it mildly. Not a uh. single rainstorm yet. And then it'll kind of scoot out of here, but they're still looking at the whole extended forecast, high temperatures above average, and no rain in the extended forecast. Okay, okay. now this leads directly into my question, yeah. which is watering. Yeah. If, uh, if, it's, if it's that dry and that warm... Um, there's going to be, you got to still keep watering. But, yes, what, no, about, yes, but uh, what about those trees that have lost all their leaves? They're 
aren't they dormant? Do we not need to water them? Does it matter if we water them? Orchards around me are running their irrigation after harvest is done. The walnuts are mostly picked up. You can now go ahead and dust your houses again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the walnuts are picked up and they're beginning to run through an irrigation cycle on them because we've had no rain. We we would normally have had one inch or so at this point, so they're running them through a normal cycle. No, most of the things in your yard, the evapotranspiration rate has gotten obviously substantially lower. We were talking over the last couple weeks about those north wind episodes giving us almost summer day-like water use rates. Um, We're past that. We're now running about 40% below that on the evapotranspiration rate. So I have found that um, I am doing an irrigation cycle on my walnuts, on my orchard, uh, commercial orchard, and also on my almonds. They're still in leaf. This will probably be the last cycle I run them through unless we go literally weeks without rain, uh, in which case I might do another one. The things that need water right now are, of course, things in containers. All my barrels on my driveway needed water yesterday. It had been four or five days since I last did it. All the smaller bedding plants you're buying, your pansies and snapdragons and things, they're needing water every day, every other day for sure, maybe every day. You know, please keep an eye on them. Uh, they'll recover faster now than they will in July if you let them go dry, but they still do need water. And, uh, of course... Um, Things you've recently planted, so things that I put in over the last four to six weeks, I'm checking daily, but nothing is needing it daily once it's in the ground. A good Mm -hmm. thorough soaking in the ground will last a few days, typically, depending on your soil. And uh, lawns, lawns that you have reseeded recently, please keep watering them each morning during the germination period. But just a few minutes each day is all that needs. And and everything, anything that is green and leafy all winter long, it needs water it's all still winter using long, water. doesn't it? Well, it's still using water. The soil is holding it, and the days are shorter. And the you know the this overcast that we get even in the mornings is is tra- is reducing the water use considerably. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're not uh, they haven't stopped. Mm-hmm. What I really worry about is people who are growing so many things in containers. Yeah, they're still needing some water. And of course, all well, of, they will need water all winter. Uh, it depends on where your containers are, but oh, yes, that's I mean true. mine are out in the rain. But uh, right. I do keep certain things under the overhang mm-hmm. uh, intentionally, close to the house, so they won't get rain water. The, the plumeria has moved to its mm-hmm. nestled corner next to the bougainvillea and the jacaranda, none of which <laughs> I should really be growing here. And I know <laughs> but that. He can. Uh, but southeast corner under the overhang where they don't get rained on—that's really the key. And you know, I, I experimented with the, uh, uh, the plumeria last year. Uh, but usually, I would bring it in. Usually by now, and it would mm-hmm. be in first in a sort of a screened porch laundry room and then eventually into the house somewhere and the thing Mm -hmm. is gawky and it doesn't really look nice anywhere in the house. Mm -hmm. So last year I thought, I have two of these. I experimented. One of them stayed out with the boat. We're in USDA Zone 9, just so any of you listening in other parts of the country or world can compare this to your own situation. Don't try this in Kansas. Uh, But I left it outside up against the house in a place where I have a bougainvillea, which is a little out of the range here in our mm-hmm. climate. And I've got a jacaranda in a pot there. And it, it stays warmer. It's the east-southeast corner. And so when you say southeast up. corner, do you mean it's an outside corner yes. or it's an inside it's, corner like a nook? It's a, it's a nook. You're, oh, I it's see what nook. you're saying. It's a nook under an overhang. And so okay. things there stay dry all winter. And that's been very handy for certain things. Mm-hmm. I don't want this plumeria to get watered when it's cold. And it came through last winter just fine. Even the cold nights we had in January when we had a number of pretty you know, cold by our standards nights, uh, it was fine. I was prepared to bring it in, but it showed no evidence of any problems. Mm-hmm. So I, it was a risk, obviously. But for those of you that are running out of space indoors for all those begonias and, and uh, plumerias and things, you can you may wish to know that as long as we're above 25 degrees and it's in a dry location, it'll probably go through just fine. That's also true for a lot of our succulents here. I, a lot of discussions on nursery Facebook groups about succulents and people are buying them and what are they going to do? And I'm thinking, well, if you're in the mid-Atlantic states or New England, 
they're going to try and grow them as house plants, and that's not usually very successful. Uh, here, we keep them outside because it's mm-hmm. brighter, far brighter, uh, but we bring them closer to the building to minimize the, the watering during the, the winter rains. That's our technique in Zone 10 and 9. We're in USDA Zone 9. Using sunset zones, that's 8, 9, 14 to 24. Let's and mention, that's, let's that's, just, wait, 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 let's jump right in here. Community garage okay. sale coming yes. up. We need to tell people about that. Okay, so that's forget. Saturday morning, 8 a.m. till noon on the 16th of November, 2019. And that cave in the back that is, is <laughs> it, it's the, the studio's in the midst of remodeling. They, they tore down lots of walls and there's this giant, giant open place out there. It is full. Okay. I mean... It full is of, amazingly full. Full of clothing, well, home decor. No, 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 no. I'm no. reading original art frames, an extra wide printer, plants. Yeah. Where are the plants coming from? Well, I was going to bring some cuttings, but I didn't I'll get provide, done. I'll provide some plants. Okay. Toys, art supplies, handmade jewelry, miscellaneous, and a whole bunch of CDs and records. And there's hundreds of CDs, hundreds <laughs> yes. and hundreds of CDs. Um, the entire place is, all the walls are covered with artwork. Not mine, mm-hmm. but various things I've accumulated over the oh, years okay. and things. So Home they're up decor. there. Yes. And uh, these uh, and these interesting paintings. And then I've got my stuff, my photographs, uh, I'm clearing out. So I'm mm-hmm. going to do, you know, clearance sale prices on those. Okay. Then there are two people coming uh, with other things. I don't know what they're bringing. Um, and then there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of electronics and uh, steer- station gear and all those parts and things. And then... I'm so excited. It, I've never seen one before. A mountain board. It's like a snowboard. It's like a, well, there's also a snowboard. <laughs> See, there is a snowboard. A snowboard used but then there's, no he snow. also brought it, another one. It's a, called a mountain board. Okay. And it's got these giant, like, really chunky wheels. It's a really amazing so it's looking an enormous thing. skateboard you use to do death-defying things going downhill. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> That's available, folks. And then uh, we've had various donations, and so there is um, at least three tables full of housewares and some really pretty tchotchkes. Very tchotchkes. nice. There we go. Tchotchkes. That's knickknacks good, good in, in, in the, the Northeast. Anyway, lots of stuff. And I uh, hope, hope you can come. And we're raising money. This is to raise money for KDRT. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of other events going on as well because next week is the start of our official fall fundraiser. And that's there when been, we talk about it on the air. There have been events going on this week yeah. where various businesses locally have sponsored evenings mm-hmm. where you could go buy pizza and the money would come to KDRT. That's Friday night. That's happening Friday night. We'll talk mm-hmm. more about that in a little bit. But the community garage sale is the first first uh, in-house event, and it's November 16th, Saturday, 8 to 12 a.m., KDRT Studio, 1623 5th Street. Come and on come down. around in the back where the there'll parking be, lot is. That's the entrance. Yeah. Be, I know. I made them. Yes. <laughs> I've seen them. <laughs> I'm all right. Organizing what do we got them. here? Go ahead. I okay. So, them. you know, we were talking about all those plants that uh, somebody wanted good plants, spectacular and easy care and all that yes, stuff. Yes, my assignment. So, what, it, what was it? Officially, it was, I want things that are spectacular, that have a bloom. With as little input from me as possible. Yes. Water, yes, maybe yeah. trim. That's it. Yeah. Okay. And so we're and up trying, to... I'm trying to keep this to things that could probably grow almost anywhere you're listening mm-hmm. to us. Now, a few of them have been more subtropical or tender kinds of things, but some of them are, are things you might even be more likely to be growing in a colder climate. Mm-hmm. So. 
So um, we've done a whole bunch, and we're on to summer now. Late and so summer in, and early fall, yes. Yes. Uh, so in the summer, he says, a penstemon, and midnight is the preferred one here. The re- there's a reason for that. Penstemon have a reputation. Uh, they're a, a flower that sort of looks like a snapdragon, and the common name of the plant is summer snapdragon. It's a perennial plant with a spiky bloom. that will resemble snapdragon, except it doesn't have the snap, so it's just a spiky bloom. They are quite easy to grow, and they give a long bloom over several weeks. Most of them have a justifiable reputation for being short-lived. Most of them, two to three years, and the plant kind of fizzles out. Mm-hmm. Uh, midnight, which is a, a dark blue or purple uh, cultivar of Penstemon heterophyllus, the common garden Penstemon, my plants go on for years. I had one go for 12 years before wow. I simply put something else in that area that it's crowded it out. It's a very long-lived garden perennial for us. Now, I believe that those of you in places where it rains in the summer have issues with stem and leaf molds and fungus on mm-hmm. penstemons. We don't get that here because we're dry. So maybe this is not in your category in Long Check Island locally. or Michigan or someplace like that. But give it a try and, and be aware that some varieties are just much better garden plants. Out here, some of the closer to native types, uh, cultivars of native species have become popular. Mm-hmm. Margarita Bop is one that's an Arboretum All-Star, for example. They're smaller plants. They're not as showy, big, and bold, but they're worth considering. But my experience with and they them. come in lots of colors. Well, they're, yeah, shades of purple, blue, pink, mm-hmm. white, uh, different different forms. Uh, my experience with the native cultivars has been they're also not real long-lived. But, mm-hmm. boy, midnight just goes on and on. You better give it four feet of space. Mm-hmm. So I want to mention that one. And then if you all grow it in rainier climates, give us your feedback. All right. Um, another one is hydrangeas. Well, oh, and you, a hydrangea bush will just give you so much. And I never would have thought that I would have put hydrangeas on a list of easy care plants. I mean, they're, well, they're they high water users, to put it mildly. And yeah. It's particularly hydrangea macrophylla, which is what I call grandma's hydrangea, mm-hmm. the old-fashioned giant flowered types. Uh, need sort of special feeding and a lot of water and all that kind of stuff. I believe they even water them in rainy climates. Uh, here they are clearly not drought tolerant, so they definitely fell out of favor during our prolonged drought, but they're kind of coming back in. And when people come in and talk about regular hydrangeas, I try to steer them towards hydrangea quercifolia. Ah, oak leaf hydrangea. We have one out front at our garden center, uh, the Redwood Barn, and you can look at it. It's right out there. It's been out there through the drought. It looked a little stressed because we got way back on the watering. It came through. It bloomed fine. Now Mm -hmm. that we've kind of added a couple more emitters, it's a lovely plant. It's giving fall color. Mm -hmm. The leaves are oak-shaped, and it gives nice white blossoms without any extra care on our part whatsoever. So the other takeaway is that it's a huge genus. There's lots of types of hydrangeas. Don't just focus on the big mop head, as they call them, or what I call grandma's hydrangeas. If you like those, fine. Just be aware that they need a lot of water. But there's other species that are really, in my opinion, easier to grow, certainly mm-hmm. here in the arid parts of the West. And that oak leaf hydrangea does well in under the redwoods, too, yeah, doesn't it? sure. Yeah, yeah. like shade. Yeah. It's one of those you things. You should try it. You have I, actually, I did. Okay. I did try it. Unfortunately, it happened to be the place where the bees, the the. Um, oh, the, the yellow jackets. Yeah, the yellow jackets were, and it got trampled <laughs> as, as my, my uh, garden friend <laughs> yes. was running out of the... Yes. Anyway. Try again. Um, try again, yeah. But what I was going to say is the white of that flower is so... It, it's almost like glow-in-the-dark. It's marvelous. They fade. It's a curious one because they fade to brown... 
but it's attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, some flowers do this. They age to a point where they look like a dried flower from like a 19th century mm-hmm. print or something. Mm-hmm. It's quite Sepia attractive. Sepia tone. Mostly the, the, you know, the Quercifolia is white, maybe with a blush of pink on some varieties. Hydrangea paniculata, the PG hydrangeas, are also very successful. They, none of these are highly drought tolerant, but they're not nearly as fussy as mm-hmm. their cousins that are better known. And, and then, if you're going to grow rain, rain, redwoods, you're going to have enough water for them. Enough red, yeah, and enough shade for yeah. them, too. So. Okay. Um, cannas or canna lily. Well, yeah, you can't really go wrong with them anywhere in California. Um, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I have them, I have many, many square feet of canna lilies on my property. Not that I'm a huge fan, but that they people keep giving them to me. I had a whole box of them one time I just threw on the ground in a mm-hmm. place I was planning to plant it. That proved to be unnecessary. They just they rooted themselves. right in and started <laughs> growing. Uh, and they are really tropical looking mm-hmm. and cool and hummingbirds like them. And mm-hmm. you know, and then they're falling down now and they'll be freezing shortly, but that's fine. You just leave them alone. In our mm-hmm. climate, you just leave them. I just mow them off, actually, literally. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they come right back year after year and spread by rhizomes. So they, they couldn't be easy to grow here. I know that there may be places where you'd have to carefully conserve the rhizome through the winter, but even doing that, of all the plants you're doing that to, it's got to be one of the easier ones. So the flowers on that, I know there's reds and yellows and golds and stuff, but the flowers aren't like um, showy flowers like a rose. It's more of a of a spike of color. It's a, a bloom spike with uh, sort of flag-like flowers on them, which are bright for a day or so, and a whole series of those that continues for quite a while. Mm-hmm. I consider cannas to be back-of-the-border plants, partly because mm-hmm. of their size, at least in the case of the original forms, and the big tropical leaves, which look great with bamboo and and uh, all kinds of other plants. I mean, they fit nicely mm-hmm. in a lot of gardens, but they're not a refined-looking plant. The seed heads are fascinatingly strange and prickly. And uh, attractive in their own right. And the other thing is hummingbirds do really like cannas. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've observed that, but they're, they're definitely attracted to them. Uh, okay. It, what's Peruvian lily? That's Alstromeria. We okay. discussed that one earlier. That one's okay. definitely, definitely up there. Yeah. Then what's the canna's other name? Uh, it is It is only called canna. Canna lilies or mm. cannas. It does not have a common name that I know of. I mean, Because I had a canna lily and I thought it said Peruvian. No, that would be Alstromeria. No, I don't think anyway, so. Anyway, it was purple. There's a lot of cultivars. In, um, in England, they grow them, you know, they carefully pamper cannas. And we're sitting here in California thinking, really? <laughs> Would you like some? <laughs> you know, there's it's one definitely that's... over the fence kind of plant, as we say, or yeah. under the fence. <laughs> uh, one of the things that, that you don't have on your list that if you have a shady area, I would recommend, because it's going right now out of my kitchen window, Fatsia. Yeah, yeah, well, for not, not, just, for, not for flowers, but yes. Yeah, yeah for flowers. That's true. They have, it does, it's you know, it's this, flowering okay. right now, white globes that this just is, glow in the this dark. That's true. Fascia japonica, the Japanese wow. aurelia, which looks tropical, although mm-hmm. it's perfectly hardy here, is a great plant for the shade. I have one that uh, that goes up and shades a window when it's hot in the summer, and then I you know cut it down, and it, it comes back. I've been doing that for years. will grow in total shade, does not mm-hmm. like direct sun of any kind. You're right. They do have clusters of white flowers that are strangely just fascinating, gorgeous. kind of attractive in a weird way, mm-hmm. um, and they do go on for quite a long time. By the way, go out and look closely at those flowers. You're almost certain to find an ant on each flower. Hmm. There's a little uh, extra floral nectary at the base of the flower that exudes uh, sh- uh, sugar that they're attracted to. I'm going to try and take pictures of these because yeah, they're, they're just cool. so gorgeous. Yeah. Okay, we're on definitely to summer to fall. Have, definitely not, would have not have put it on my um, you know, flowering plants list. It's more grown for the tropical foliage. But, yeah, well, that's yeah. true. But yeah. right now, November, yep. Yep. It's, it's a spectacular. Also grown as a house plant in colder climates. 
This thing is 12 feet tall, Don. Yeah, well, it would do that if it had enough time. <laughs> hey, they grow oleanders as house plants. What do you want? <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and actually this one has survived a lot of things. It's yes. underneath a redwood, and the redwood keeps dropping branches in those windstorms. Mm-hmm. So it's been smashed you a few times. You can cut it to the ground every so often if necessary for size oh, control if you had some reason it. to do that. I love to have it yeah. big. Okay, next, a butylon, my favorite plant. They bloom, of course, potentially oh. year-round. Mm-hmm. Um, their heaviest bloom, in my opinion, is summer to early fall. That just seems to be my experience, although the varieties differ. There's a lot of different abutilons, sometimes mm-hmm. called flowering maple. Great. Uh, or China bells. Uh, shrub, shrubby, sprawly plant uh, that stretches, and so some people plant it as if it were a vine. I remember mm-hmm. in Southern California, the ones we sold there many years ago would scramble up into trees. Uh, that down there, they got white flies, and that was a bit of a nuisance. Mm-hmm. Here, there uh, doesn't seem to be a huge problem on them. The flowers are little hibiscus flowers that are usually nodding or hanging. Pendant. Pendant, yes. They look like petticoats or like uh, globes. Ballerinas. I have one, some that look like, like lanterns and others mm-hmm. that are flared out like petticoats. And uh, they just bloom. They initiate flowers all the time. Mm-hmm. Heavy bloom late summer and into the fall for me, and hummingbirds all over them. They absolutely love them. Everything in the hibiscus family, and that's the family we're in, the mallow family. Uh, um, and then they go into the winter and they're still trying to bloom. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't even freeze back here in USDA Zone 9. But the leaves will cup a bit if it's really cold and they'll kind of stop blooming. That's about it. And they won't even stop blooming if it's sunny and fairly mild in the winter. One of the things I would recommend is as you're going into whenever your your winter weather starts and you'd like to have a lovely houseplant, go to a nursery and find one of these abutilons that is totally bud-ridden. It's got buds and buds and buds and buds and buds and <laughs> yes, all yeah, and then bring that home. Yeah. And it will bloom for you for two months. I'm it waiting. is amazing. We're gonna have a, a, a show at some point fairly soon about the holiday flowering plants and I'm I've already got notes on this, you know, the ones that you mm-hmm. buy for bloom. And I'm waiting for the florists and that industry to pick up on the dwarf rebutilons because mm-hmm. I know they would bloom indoors in a sunny window. Oh, yeah. And they and could go gorgeous. on a lot longer than a lot of the other things that yeah. are sold for that purpose. And they're so, red. There's some yeah, red ones yeah. and yellow ones and white ones and yep. pink ones and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, next one. <laughs> Oh, called yellow bells, although other colors are now available, and it's Tacoma stands. This is fairly new in the trade. These are related to the Tecomeria, or so-called Cape honeysuckle, which is not a honeysuckle, but it's the common name. Tacoma is a vine that's being sold like a shrub. Mm-hmm. Um, I planted one when they first came on the market out front at our store, and it's now about 10 feet tall. But most people are selling them to be pruned back and allowed to branch and bloom. This is a southeastern U.S. native that's been taken on, and the British in particular just love it. It has these tubular flowers that are orange or yellow, and there's a new darker sort of brick uh, uh, reddish-brown one now on the market as well. Very attractive to hummingbirds. Bloom like crazy no matter how hard you prune them. So that's become a real selling point is you can plant this vine-like thing. It's a sprawling shrub, really, like a, like bougainvillea. It's one of those sprawling plants that you can tie up like a vine. But in the case of these, you can prune them back and they'll keep blooming and they'll bloom right into the fall. Hmm. Shall we do the rest of these another time? There's yep, we'll a few just more. do a few each time. So. Okay, I'll draw a line right. There. All right, and up on the other notes, I had two questions that I added on real quickly at the last minute. So as you go to your next page, I yeah, think you'll right. find the handwritten It says, one. how are bonsai and carnivorous plants similar? <laughs> yes, there's a... Is, is, that a, is that a trick question? Uh, kind of. Did, did someone ask you or did you no, just I've, think I've, about this it? This is an observation of mine. The same sorts of people 
seem to be <laughs> buying carnivorous plants and bonsai. They're fascinated by them. They get intrigued. It's, they're both interesting things to sort of start as a gardener with. It's an introvert garden. Yeah, I, well, okay. And um, they are um, both easy to kill. So they require some fairly specialized knowledge, but it isn't that difficult to attain. In other words, it's the kind of thing where you, if you're 11-year-old uh, or just getting into gardening again for therapeutic reasons or whatever, you could actually become a pretty quick proficient expert in either of those topics and be really satisfied by buying and growing carnivorous plants or bonsai. In both cases, the biggest mistake people make is trying to grow them as houseplants. And they're mm. not really indoor plants, at least not here. Now, again, we know that you're, we've got listeners all over the country, all over the world. So if you're in a much colder climate, you'll need to find out in particular. But the other thing about them is that what you can buy within each category, carnivorous plants or bonsai, range mm. dramatically. Uh, bonsai that come into my nursery range from a few subtropical plants that have to be indoors, like Schefflera, grown as a bonsai, to things like junipers and pines, which are perfectly cold-hardy in much colder climates than this. And the same is true of carnivorous plants. Also, there are some of each category that need a winter dormancy. If you buy a Japanese maple or a ginkgo or something like that as a bonsai, it needs to turn its fall color, drop its leaves, go dormant, like a normal, like it would out in the garden. And if you try to keep it indoors, you'll disrupt that cycle and the plant will not be long-lived. Mm. And the same is true of some carnivorous plants. And most importantly, it's true of the Venus flytrap, which is far and away the most popular of the carnivorous plants. And where is that native from? The Carolinas. Okay. The, so it doesn't get North American freezing, Carolina. but they it gets freeze, cold. Well, they freeze and they get cold, but the ground doesn't freeze. So it's very mm -hmm. similar, actually, to interior California, except that they grow in bogs and it's always really humid there where they grow. So that would be the difference. But they're not from the tropics and they're not from, uh, they're not greenhouse plants. There are carnivorous plants that are tropical and others that are subtropical and some that grow like the Venus flytrap in places with fairly cold winters, but where the ground doesn't freeze. And there are even some carnivorous plants like the butterworts, which range from Mexico and Guatemala all the way up to Scandinavia. Mm. And so you need to know which species you have. Same is true of bonsai. So you can become a bit of an expert pretty quickly and get intrigued by them. And in both cases, I suggest you find a place outside, depending on where you're listening, where you can keep them most of the time because they're generally not good indoor plants for the most part. And many of them, zones USDA zones 9 or 10 and probably 8, can live outside mm -hmm. and are better outside, especially if they need that winter dormancy. So you need to find out. You, you're talking about Venus flytrap, but what's that one that, that's shaped like a, 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 a goblet and it has hairs pointed down so the, the flies fly into it? There's, an append, there's pitcher plants of pitcher various plants. types, and, yeah. the, and some of them are tropical. Some of them are highland tropicals. Some of them are lowland tropicals. Some of them are... Uh, hardy enough. If you go up to Oregon, you'll see the cobra plants. You'll drive along Darlingtonia as you drive along the coast of Oregon. You come to a really cool little wayside. There's a lot of waysides in the coast of mm -hmm. Oregon, a little county park or something. Darlingtonia wayside. All right, so we're way north of here, a place that it gets reasonably cold in the winter, but not. Like, but it's on the coast, like so it's not cold. it's, it's like, not freezing cold. It's probably the closest to, to what they have in England that mm -hmm. we have in, in, in the United States, I'm told. And you can walk in. It's about a 40-minute walk in and around. It's in two acres of, or so of nothing but these Darlingtonias. So obviously those are cold tolerant, as mm -hmm. are many of the species of Darlingtonias that grow in California. So there's tropical Nepenthes, which have to be, can't go below 50. There's others. The highland types can go down into the 40s and could probably be outside. And then there's 
there's the Saracenias, which are the American native pitcher plants, which live outside. I mean, they are mm-hmm. they're outdoor plants. So the bottom line is that you uh, you need to find out, and that's a cool thing about both of these groups of plants. You can become an expert without too much difficulty, but you need to do a little research. Mm-hmm. So it's a great thing for a 12 year old, you know, who's getting into plants. They can find out. Oh, well, now speaks I, the former 12 year old some, who did this. Now I have some expertise in this, <laughs> and I stand out in my family as the one who knows about carnivorous plants. It's good to uh, and you can go way. to the dinner table on Thanksgiving and bore everyone to tears. <laughs> no, no, no. You'll find the one other person who cares and you'll have the great conversation. Yeah. So if you start collecting either of them, carnivorous plants or bonsai, first of all, I suggest you look at an outdoor location here in the valley of the shade of a high tree or the north side of the house. So they're not in blinding hot sun. Although the Venus flytraps can take direct sun. They live in sunny bogs in the Carolinas. I've never been to a sunny bog in the Carolinas. I can imagine it's pretty intense in terms of humidity. Um, and odor. Yeah, and probably a lot of little tiny flies. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple great resources online if you get into that. The California Carnivores is a company down in the Bay Area that has a phenomenal website. And the other one of my absolute favorites is the Texas Triffid Ranch. Triffids? Did you ever see the movie? That was that science fiction. Yes. Well, no, well, I read the book. Okay, well, there, it was a great movie, too. It's about yeah. plants that get up and run around and kill Walk people. Walk around and, yeah, yeah the, oh, yeah, they're, they're only, mean. Only at night. The Texas Triffid Ranch uh, has a fantastic website, and one of my absolute favorite links there that I refer people to all the time is his, quote, Absolute Surefire Steps to Kill Your Venus Flytrap. <laughs> and it's very well written, very entertaining. And the first thing he says that uh, I really think is worth repeating is that buying them at Halloween is almost a death, a sure way to kill them because they're about to go dormant. Mm-hmm. You're buying it; it's about to go dormant. You bring it inside, and that's the you know the classic way to kill them off. Unfortunately, so uh, they're they're something you should buy probably in the spring or early summer. Uh, they do need dormancy. They need winter dormancy, or else they'll just they won't be long lasting. That's the particular bottom line there on Venus flytrap. So if you're in a very cold place where the ground freezes, yeah, you'll probably need to do something like dig them up and stick them in a cold frame or something, someplace outside, but where the ground doesn't freeze. Do you even know what a cold frame is? I know where they are. I've seen pictures of them. I've never had a need for one. (laughs) I've Uh I've told people in cold climates use these Mm -hmm. to grow, you know, beets and things. Uh, In in places where it never freezes, uh, where like Southern California, where I grew up, frost-free, Southern, you know, parts of Florida, parts of Texas, you may have to actually induce dormancy. And he actually suggests, if you're, say, in Galveston, Texas, or in Southern Florida, it may be necessary to dig them up cut off the tops, wrap the bulb, they actually have a bulb, with moist sphagnum moss and put them in the refrigerator. He goes, not the freezer, put them in the refrigerator for two to three months. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it does need an extended cold period. So if you're listening in, say, San Diego, coastal Los Angeles, places like that, you may need to induce dormancy in your Venus flytrap. The overwhelming majority of them probably get sold as a novelty thing that lasts for a few weeks, and then they die. One of the worst things about it is they sell them in these plastic tubes, which when we ordered some, that's how they arrived, which is great. They shipped well. They were mm-hmm. not damaged in shipping. We then carefully cut those off because we didn't want people to think this is a greenhouse plant. Mm. This is not a plant that wants those conditions. It wants to be outside. Just don't, you know, just, just be aware that it needs that winter dormancy and don't freak out when it essentially goes dormant in the winter. Hmm. So, More than you ever knew about. Oh, if you want to know more than you ever no, knew, no, I no. just recommend the Texas no. Triffid Ranch. He's very folksy. He's got a great writing <laughs> I, I, style. I made a note and stuck it in my purse. Yep. So we'll, we'll yep. Lots of fun. Okay. Um, oh, we could, he, he, he was really prepared today. He has a, a list yep. for the show, and he actually has a list in order. I'm supposed to read it. And then he, he jots notes in the corner. So I'm going to take one of the notes first. Cover crops? Do we plant those now? Right now? 
great time to plant cover crops. What, Anytime. What cover crops do we well, use? Well, first of all, what is a cover crop? It's something it's you something plant. Something that covers the ground to keep the weeds down. Keep the weeds down, build the soil, add organic material, fix nitrogen. Uh, you know, so they're, they Make all have it pretty. Diff- they, they all have different purposes. Yeah, some of them like uh, clover will draw beneficials when they're in bloom. The most popular that I sell are fava beans mm-hmm. uh, for the fast growth, the interesting flowers, the very high nitrogen fixing. It, it pulls nitrogen out of the air and puts it into the soil around the roots. And uh, the fact that they're so vigorous that they really outcompete weeds very effectively. Mm-hmm. So if you're, gonna have, if you're not going to have something growing in your vegetable garden uh, and you don't want weeds and you want to help build the soil, fava beans are a really simple way to go. And they the- are big, stiff almost woody plants by the mm-hmm. end of the season. I mean, I chop, I cut them down with loppers. They don't mow and they don't <laughs> rototill. They are just something you're going to cut down in a no-till garden like but mine. They, you just cut them down, pile them up at the end, let the roots disintegrate on their own and interplant your tomatoes between them. And that's what and, I was going to say about the roots is yeah. that they have big, strong roots, so yeah. they're making lovely water channels when the roots dissolve. Yeah, and, they, and they're, they're a good way to help break up heavier soils. Now, there's lots of other cover crops. Annual ryegrass, is, it doesn't fix nitrogen but it grows very quickly. makes a really pretty meadow-like look. Outcompetes all kinds of other weeds, so it's a really good one if you've got a problem with annual winter weeds. And then you just mow it off in the beginning of the season and it essentially disintegrates at that point. There's also clovers. Clovers are much slower to get going. I like to do them on the perimeter of the garden because they take a lot longer and they're still blooming in the spring when I'm getting ready to do summer vegetables and I like to leave them because they draw bees and beneficials of all kinds. And so I just pretty much plant them on the edges of the garden beds. And the one I planted that I want to call your attention to as a warning is vetch, which I have planted Mm -hmm. regular common vetch and also I think I planted purple vetch. If you do this... Mm-hmm. And you let it go to seed. Mm-hmm. You'll you be will er- have vetch. You'll forever. be everywhere. So mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong it's with vetch. It makes a great, great combination with annual ryegrass. Mm-hmm. And if you mow it all down before the seed pods form, great. It's a nitrogen fixer. It kind of clambers up over the annual ryegrass. So it makes a great cover crop mm-hmm. combination. Very classic combination. Try to get it before those seed pods burst because that's what they do. And it's now scattered itself happily into my orchard. I'm fine with it in the orchard, mm-hmm. but I don't want it in other places. It is so a great, great one for for little embankments on the yeah. side of the road. Yeah. Um, if you go up in the foothills, you'll see places where that's just all purple. Yeah, all that's it's very attractive and, yeah. and fixes nitrogen to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the fava beans have a relative that is shorter called bell beans. It's just another cultivar in the same genus and species. People who don't want the tall plants of fava beans and don't care about eating them sometimes plant bell beans instead. Fava beans you do eat. Some people do. Um, and bell beans you don't. They're just grown for cover. And some people actually plant mustard and things like that. Uh, mustard has some advantages. Um, I know there's at least two listeners who are allergic to it, so you're obviously not going to do this. But it has a fast-growing root system and uh, and a fast-growing top. I mean, in a wet year, the mustard is up to my chin or taller by the end of the rainy season. Mm-hmm. And it's a very vigorous plant. It doesn't fix nitrogen, but two advantages. Uh, beneficials love the flowers, and so do red-winged Red blackbirds. blackbirds. That's yes. where they nest. Yeah, yeah. So if you can leave them on the, on the edge of the property until the beginning of your gardening season, great. If you know, Do mm-hmm. bear in mind that they become an overwintering habitat for harlequin bug 
which you can which use is good. to your advantage. You can then, when you're when everything is going in, they're over there. Then you cut all that down and, and they disperse, and you get rid of them. They can they basically just disperse at that point. But those uh, harlequin bugs are good, aren't no, they? No, harlequin bugs are no good. No bad no guys. Good. Bad, bad guys. ones. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and they're a common problem in, in both interior California and the coastal parts of California. They like members of the mustard family. Mm-hmm. So if you let that mustard go through the summer in your garden, which it will do, uh, it can do. If you don't cut it down. Then you plant your mustard family members in the fall, which is all the broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels mm. sprouts, cabbage, all them. The harlequin bugs will just move right off of the mustard onto them. Mm. Whereas if you have carefully cut down all the mustard, the chopped it up in mid to spring or, or early summer and composted it, then you won't have a problem with that. Because the harlequin bugs have already moved on and they're moved not there waiting for you. Something else, that's right. Yeah. So it's a great time right now in California to plant cover crops. I try to get some on right before any rainstorm. Uh, barring that, I'll throw the seed out there and water a couple times. just like grass seed, just water each morning. Okay. Well, we had a question, and this is a follow-up from the article that Don did about lawns and about other things we've said on the show. And the question is, is it still okay in November, to broadcast seeds with the nights getting colder. How late can you broadcast seeds, and will it affect the rate of, or amount of germination? Uh, taking those in the reverse order, as it gets colder, the seed comes up more slowly. Some of it rots, and there's more competition from other things that came up a little earlier. So it'll probably reduce the percentage of germination, but not to nothing. And so uh, we feel that when the temperatures are in the 40s, you'll get very rapid germination right now. This week, with the forecast we gave you at the beginning of the show, you couldn't be better for direct seeding grass seed. You get You're into saying the nights in the 40s. Nights in the 40s, days, okay. in, the days in the 60s and 70s. Uh, sunny is fine. Absolutely perfect for, for grass seeding. If we, when we get into the 30s, it doesn't kill the seed. It just germinates more slowly. Mm-hmm. So ryegrass sprouts in seven days instead of five. Fescue sprouts in 12 to 14 days instead of 10. And you have to just be aware of that, that, that it's going to take that much longer. I have seeded successfully all the way into mid to late December, and then it took almost two and a half weeks to germinate, but things did. They so were, it sounds like any time you can much, do it. Pretty much. You start getting into night after night of frost as we get in January very commonly, then it's just not going to come up very quickly, although the seed will probably still be there in February. So I would say mid to late December is still fine. It's just going to come up more slowly. But right now, November, couldn't be better. Right, right before a rainstorm is my favorite time to scatter grass seed. But there's no rain in the forecast, so yeah, you're going to have to be your own sprinkle. I've been doing that, yes, yeah. a few minutes each morning. Okay, so continuing with your ongoing series of evaluating fragrant plants. Yes. Which are easy, which could be more popular? Okay, uh, I have a whole list, which is on the back seat. Yeah, page there. I know, but I do a couple of them. The, so, hmm? a night blooming. The ones with the arrows? Yeah, evening. We've talked about a couple in the past. If, two years ago, three years ago, I made a long list of all the old-fashioned fragrant flowers I could think of and find. And it's on his website. Including some that had fallen out of favor and others that were still popular. And with trying to figure out, I would just grow them methodically, go through and grow particularly the annual flowering types and see maybe what's the reason that people have Mm -hmm. stopped growing these. Like sweet peas. Right now is a great time to plant out seedlings of sweet peas. Soil's getting a little cold for direct seeding them, so it's still time to, okay to do seed, but you should probably start them in pots first. They grow up as a vine. The vine goes four to five feet in the case of most varieties. Some are shorter, some get bigger. And they start blooming typically in February here in the valley, and they bloom February, March. April until we hit the 90 degree temperature range. Lots and lots and lots of bloom in that time on a vine that sprawls all over what's nearby. 
I think that may be the reason they kind of fall out of favor. Mm-hmm. There's a they have to go somewhere, so you have to do a little so bit either, of either either a trellis or yeah. a bush. Tomato or something. cage is what we talked about last time, uh-huh. and then at the end of the season, there's that messy period where you got to you know pull them all out and clean it all up. So maybe that's what it is. I do think you all should grow sweet peas. We've talked about that before, but and keep the, them away from a regular peas. That's right. The sweet peas are poisonous. Regular peas are not. So don't put them in your vegetable garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fragrance is amazing. They're uh, they like the cool weather. Those of you listening in in really cold winter climates, or presume you plant them in early spring for spring bloom, and then they're probably done with the summer's heat. Uh, in, they're great in the UK. They're great in Oregon. I mean, places where it's sort of cool all the time. The sensitivity to mildew was a big problem on older varieties. Sometimes you'll run into an issue where there was just a chronic disease problem. And I don't think people nowadays are willing to spray fungicides, nor should they. Uh, so just look for newer varieties are just more resistant. So uh, that's a particularly good one right now. But the other one I want to mention is evening scented stock, which I was one of my you know bucket list of plants to grow. And I finally found a seed two years ago and started the seed and planted it out last winter. And it's an unbelievable fragrance. I mean, and it's, it's just stock it's or stock. it's this particular it's, it's a species, variety? Species. Stock is a plant, weird name. Stock is a plant that we plant kind of like snapdragons and pansies. Mm-hmm. Same season of plant. And when you buy them in the, in the garden center, they're usually dwarf stock. Plural and singular are the same. Dwarf stock, which grow a foot and have clusters of double pink, lilac, lavender, and white flowers, sometimes red. And they're fragrant, pleasantly sweet fragrance, and they never get amount to much. I mean, these mm-hmm. new ones, this is a case of rampant dwarfism by the breeders. They are really tight little growers, so you stick a few in and they're kind of pleasant. They've always been around for cutting, and I've been growing those more and more, where these are yeah, the two, big to, ones. two to three-foot plants with mm-hmm. foot-long clusters of blooms on long, sturdy stems that are great for cutting. I don't do that as much, but I like the way they look out in the garden. Evening-scented stock. I think the reason it became superseded by all the other types, it's a different species. It blooms the same cycle. The plant is more open. Hmm. The flower is smaller, and it's not as showy. But it smells but it's good. unbelievably fragrant. It's, it's up there with night-blooming jessamine and osmanthus fragrance. It's one of those blooms when you're 20, 30 yards away, you're going, what on earth is that? And you get closer, your eyes start to water. You, know, you want to be careful about bringing this into the house before you find out whether you have anyone who you're in your household that's sensitive to fragrances because it's that kind of powerful fragrance. <laughs> that may be another factor. Something mm-hmm. I do run into is that not everyone likes super fragrant flowers. It depends so, on the fragrance, so, too. Yeah, I mean, you don't like star jasmine, for example. Oh, hardly, anybody, hardly anybody actually likes paper white narcissus. Um, these are sold for their fragrance. Well, this is one that is definitely out there in, in fragrance. I would suggest planting it with other stock and with other snap with snapdragons because they'll help to hold it up and make it look a little less rangy than the mm-hmm. regular form. So definitely worth growing. Right now is when you would plant it. The only from way seed I, or from cuttings I've done or from... it from seed or seedlings. I finally just handed the big packet of seed to a grower that I work with and said, here, start these. Uh, just, I'll, I'll buy them when you're ready. And uh, she did so. So I'm, you know, I've got them. That's the only way I could get them to sell in my nursery because nobody grows this plant. Hmm. If you want to do it yourself, wherever you're listening, if it's a very cold climate, stock is probably planted in early spring and probably done blooming by midsummer. I don't know for sure. You'd have to check. You know, Whatever snapdragon cycle is in your area, that's the same as this evening-scented stock. What else is on there? Another, let's do one, okay, more. Um, one more. Sweet Sultan, Amber Boa yeah, Moscata. I found that one. I read about Sweet Sultan. And any of you in Mediterranean climates should look this one up. I grew it last year, this year, I should say. Started it in the winter in my greenhouse, transplanted it out with the warm weather. And it has a, a flower that looks like a pink 
cornflower. Does that help? Uh, yeah, it's bachelor buttons. Bachelor buttons, yeah, only mm-hmm. bigger and more feathery. And got a very sweet fragrance like the soap grandma used. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Your grandma is not my grandma. She was big on lavender, too, actually. But uh, yeah. Mine was, in, you know, this was like, so it smelled like soap, like lye. Okay, like no, that, that, strong. not Dr. Bronner's mm. soap. No, this is a sweet, a sweet, fruity smell and definitely worth going. That would it's be a, perfume. All right. It's, tra- it's, from, it's from Turkey, I believe. It's uh, certainly a Mediterranean climate. Great for California gardeners. I think this one needs to catch on. So and try then, to start sweet sultan with your, tom- start it with your pepper plants from seed. Okay. Uh, if you can find it. Okay. okay. When do we plant pak choy? Is that the same as bok choy? Yes. And all those other Asian stir-fried greens? Here, now. Okay, here and now. Easy, easy to do, and they can go well into the cold weather. And I'm told that just like kale, every bit of frost makes them sweeter. Hmm. There's lots and lots of different kinds. They're incredibly easy to grow. It is the kind of plant where you keep planting them because they bolt, in, terms, in other words, go to flower very quickly. But you can also use them in all those same ways when they're coming into flower, or even in full flower. It's, it doesn't matter that they're blooming. Mm-hmm. So very, very easy to grow. All right. From seed, from plants, whatever you like to do. Okay. Now, before we get on to this three-page rant. Well, you don't have to do um, three pages. <laughs> this is background information. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what else are we going to be doing? This is November. Yes. What, what, what's our schedule for the fall? Do we Are we having a show every time? Or oh, yes. Is I'm it, not going uh, Well, it's, we're closed for Thanksgiving. I yes. know that. Yes, it'll be a nice alternate show running on Thanksgiving. Uh-huh. We'll be here. I thought then, you, I thought what you about meant, Christmas? Are we, uh, you know? Uh, Christmas Day our, is the, is it Wednesday? So, so they're I'll closed be, for two weeks, right. the last two weeks of December. Something like that. So, so We'll all be reruns. We'll be around. Watch but, for reruns. But you can still send us your questions and your information at davisgardenshow at gmail.com. And if you want to phone phone in like Acer does, you can call us at. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Dennis. 792 1648. We're going to have to post that right on the microphone so you can, can always see it. See it. I just have to turn around. There we go. <laughs> okay. All right. So this is our annual question Poinsettias. Yes. Poinsettias are arriving at local stores and garden centers now. It's mid-November. So here's the big question. Are poinsettias poisonous? No. No. That's the short answer. No. No. The the marketing manager of Eki Ranch in Southern California, which was for a long time the biggest leading producer of poinsettia starts for every grower in the world, has been known as he was walking through with TV, you know, cameras and stuff to grab a few bracts, which is what we call those colorful leaves that are the, the part of the poinsettia you're growing it for, and eat them in front of persistent <laughs> disbelievers. Um, he says it's unlikely a kid or an animal will eat more than one bite. He describes the taste as far worse than the most bitter radicchio. Frankly, he says the flavor is indescribably awful, quote, end quote. And from a fellow nursery owner, the reply was, yes, I've sampled them, and the bitterness is both vile and sticky because they do have a, a latex in them. So now here's the problem. Thanks to the Internet, you can go online and get all kinds of contradictory information. So one site, for example, the ASPCA, the, the gold standard, the go-to site for whether they're toxic, things are toxic to pets. I want to emphasize about that site. It is what I call binary. It's a yes or no. They don't get into shades of gray. They don't get into how much, how much it takes. They yeah. just they have a yes or a no. And I find that frustrating. But if you're particularly risk averse, it's probably the best site for you. So they do list it as toxic to dogs, toxic to cats, and toxic to 
horses. Not sure how that would come up, but um, it has an irritating sap. And so it can cause some irritation, maybe even if a large amount was ingested somehow, perhaps some vomiting. But they make the co- they even make the comment, generally overrated in toxicity. Uh, it would take a large amount. And so, and with that sap, and it's so is, bitter that yeah. there's no way that anyone conscious well, could any, anybody possibly. with a, a large frisky dog knows that they could perhaps consume a fairly large amount. Oh, but they would they would spit time. it out well, we and vomit right, it up. <laughs> yes, it'll yeah. come right back up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, another thing to be aware of is that the 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 latex material that's in it is like latex, and people with a latex allergy. Yeah, have, it could be an may react to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you should be aware that there's many related plants. In the euphorbia genus, I mean, poinsettia is a euphorbia, euphorbia pulcherima, which just means pretty. Uh, there's lots of euphorbias that have sap that is highly irritating mm-hmm. and many that have sap that is only mildly irritating. Uh, so that may be where all of this comes from is that there's lots of related members of the same family and same genus. And when you see that white sap, you tend to think, ooh, that's probably toxic. Mm-hmm. You should be aware that it probably can cause some skin irritation. But overall, the answer is no matter how bitter, no matter because of how bitter and unpalatable the leaves and the bracts are, the risk, which is minimal to begin with, is sometimes described as self-limiting. <laughs> Be very hard to ingest it. So. And that was the Colorado State University yeah. Guide to Poisonous Plants, which is an excellent website. Yeah, by I've the got way. a whole bunch of them where they actually go in more detail to what the what the material is in a plant, and mm-hmm. you know, does it take a large amount to cause illness, yeah. or is it just going to be your mouth is really irritated, and you might want to call the you know the pediatrician mm-hmm. or the vet and say, what do I do about this? The cat is shaking his head. It's not life threatening. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that gives us a more broader thing to 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 talk about, which is which holiday plants, if any, are toxic. Yes. And Don wrote an article. Long I'm not time going ago. to read this. Yeah, you can go to redwoodbarn.com and just type in holiday plants, and it's one of the very first articles that I posted up there long, long ago from the Davis Enterprise, probably 20 years or more. But I do periodically go in and check and update uh, when I get more information about something. Uh, uh, so things like ivy. <laughs> and the, the, the first one, he's talking about holly, mm-hmm. and he says, um, our native holly plant, whose Latin name is Ilix vomitoria, yeah. Gives an indication of the symptoms of what happens if you eat the berries. Yeah, they're not. You throw uh, up. You definitely will. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, not not fun. Not fun. Uh, however, I, ivy, which is used in mm-hmm. a lot of indoor arrangements and stuff, is actually major toxicity. I mean, that's that's a, that one is one you should be aware of. Amaryllis bulbs will cause you to be ill, but uh, it, it's the principal component is in small amounts, so you'd have to eat a lot of the bulb to get any serious symptoms. And, you, and the flower doesn't yeah, have it. Biting into it will probably yeah. just cause you know, skin irritation. Um, narcissus, paper whites, are often described as major toxicity. Uh, so if you're growing those paper whites indoors, then be aware that that particular bulb can cause nausea and vomiting and all kinds of symptoms that I won't go into. It but it's the bulb se- severe still. irritation. Well, all parts of all the daffodil, of okay. uh, of daffodils and narcissus are toxic. Not life-threatening. That's good to know. Will resolve, quote, within a few hours. So, you know, that's one to be aware of. You probably don't want to have that much, that much, uh, that kind of thing going on around the holidays. Mm-hmm. The one I wanted to bring your attention to is Kalankoa, which uh, is a huge group. Do the, the second name on that, that this one? Kalankoa Blasfeldiana. It doesn't have a common name, unfortunately. Kalankoa. Kalankoa is a huge group. Uh, Mother of Many is a Kalankoa. There's a bunch of others. 
And they're generally not considered real toxic to us, except that um, they are toxic to dogs and cats mm. in the sense that they can cause cardio and gastrointestinal irritation and upset. And if they get a large volume, eat a bunch of them, then they can actually affect their heart rate and rhythm. And so your vet should know. Those are these really flower, really brightly colored succulent that flower. Most mm-hmm. succulents don't flower noticeably or, or as spectacularly. Years ago, the Kalanchoa blasphildiana was bred for tighter growth habit. They can control the day length just like they do with poinsettias to get them to bloom really beautifully and uniformly. The blooms last for two to three months as they mm-hmm. open one by one over a long period of time. So they're a great indoor succulent for color. And uh, at that point, most people throw them out, but they're actually pretty easy to continue growing. It's not that easy to get them to bloom again, but be aware that they could be toxic to your pet in large volume. And so it's the kind of thing, as long as you know that, if they eat some, I suppose you could mention it to your vet. It's not likely to be a concern, but it's something to be aware of. There are some plants that dogs and cats just love to eat mm-hmm. and aren't good for them. But this isn't one of them, is it? No. If they if they took a bite of this, they'd go, Egh. No, we're thinking more in terms of puppies that eat everything before their brain kicks in. Uh, Anybody who's had that kind of puppy. Puppies have brains? Anyone who's had that kind of puppy <laughs> knows what we're talking about. So, right. What about azaleas? Uh, they're very irritating to the skin, I can tell you from considerable experience, and they have major toxicity. Mm. Yeah. And that's foliage as well as flowers and everything else. And then the last one he has here is a mistletoe is an oddity. Well, I tried to find out information, and back before the Internet was readily available, I just called the Poison Control Center, and uh, the operator there said that ingestion of a couple berries or leaves would lead to severe vomiting and diarrhea, which isn't much fun. Uh, so her, she linked me towards the most useful reference, which is calpoison.org. Okay, mm, we want the next question. Okay, ah, we're back off of all those poisonous yeah. things, and now we're back to roses. And this this person wrote, "I'm looking for roses, but I'd like native ones. Can you get native roses?" Um, if you're asking here, Rosa rugosa, isn't not it? native here. If you're so, this depends on what you're asking. Rosa rugosa is a great choice for those of you in very cold climates. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most cold tolerant. I believe it's along the roadsides of Alaska, and I gather those of you up in New England know it quite well. Very disease resistant mm-hmm. and, and uh, really cool rose, actually. A lot of uh, some interesting hybrids. If they're asking here, they're probably the only one is Rosa californica. Let me warn you about Rosa californica. I have it. I planted it 30 years ago. So that must mean that you have a giant bramble patch that Not giant. Is... That's the good news. It doesn't get real tall, but it spreads by rhizomes uh-huh. steadily outward. And it's about so, 30 feet wide yeah, now, it's, isn't it's it? Holding, it's holding its own against some blackberries, yeah. and that's the kind of area that I just have to <laughs> mow with a giant brush mower every now and then. It has a once-a-year bloom. It's lovely. I have pictures of it. Lovely, mm-hmm. pale pink, delicate petals, semi-double or single flowers. That's it. You only get it in the spring, so it's only a once-a-year bloom. Mm-hmm. Right after that, you can go ahead and mow it if you wish to, it will cover quite a territory. I want people to know that when they Mm -hmm. just come in asking casually for native roses, this is the kind of plant you put in your yard and whoever's living there 10 years from now may curse you because it can be a very difficult one to get rid of. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's pretty in its own way. It does make nice wildlife habitat. Especially if you're out in the country like you are. I mean, that's a, it's a wonderful place because Mm -hmm. it's, it's open enough that the birds can get into it, but it's, it's thick enough that the cats and dogs are discouraged. Right. I have had two, uh, I've had quail living in there Mm -hmm. off and on. I'll walk by and and at various times over the years, foxes have actually nested Mm -hmm. down in that, that density. You'll find the 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 tohis, uh, spotted tohis. So it's not a plant for a discreet 
normal residential property. Yeah. Now, if she meant species roses, you know, just like wild species roses, there's other choices. Lady Banks is a species rose. But Rosa it's not Suleana. from California. It's not from California, no. Uh, we only have, as far as I know, here in the Valley, the Rosa Californica. So well, wherever you're listening, you may well have others. But be aware that many roses on their own roots will sucker. And we'll mm-hmm. form pretty extensive thickets. thickets. If that's yeah. your thing, cool. If not, eh, they're hard to get rid of. I've had more than one that have done that to me. So. Okay. Well, then the next question that I have on my list is the one that you already answered about all those carnivorous plants. Mm-hmm. So um, my list is done. Um, we had some other questions oh, about... No, here's, here we go. Do go my ahead. succulents need special care in the winter? Yes, they need you not to overwater them. That's really important. They barely need water. But in the if they're time. outside, don't they'll get rained on? Won't they? Yeah, and that's not great in most cases. So ah, we generally so we generally move our succulent and cactus display at our nursery over to the east side of our building, which is mm-hmm. a you know two story building, and that rain shadow created by the building generally keeps them dry enough that they do fine. We lose because our water, our, our winds come from the west, the south southwest. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's our approach. Now what we do right now is we take all of the jade plants. The calancoas and the um, uh, so the fuzzies and the jades is what we say. And then I go through and I sort out the aloes that I know to be tender, which includes aloe vera. And we take the uh, the uh, hanging string of pearls and the string of dolphins and some of the others like that, which are senecias. And we know those are not frost tolerant. Mm-hmm. And we bring them, put them all together in their own flats near the building. Mm-hmm. And that's where they stay most of the time. And if I look at the weather and it looks like we're going to get below about 29 or 30 for a substantial period of time that night, I'll just bring them into the building during the night and put them back out during the day. Why don't I leave them inside the it whole time? It's too dark inside. It is. Even in the brightest, sunniest place we have for houseplants, that change is about a 50 to 75% drop in lighting, and it just isn't ideal for them. So we've done it. When we've had major freezes uh, a mm-hmm. few times here, we've brought them in and held them for a couple weeks inside. I try to get them back out as quickly as I can because indoors they're more vulnerable to rot. Uh, because they're much lower light status. So water as little as possible, protect the ones that are frost tender, and you need to find out which those are. Here in California, USDA Zone 9 and 10, uh, the jades are, are fine as long as they're close to the building in Zone 9. They're fine outside in Zone 10. So, so succulent plants, um, is, is it something where you can just looking at it know what it is? No. No, you need to get them identified, which can be challenging. I'll tell you, there's a lot of places selling succulents right now because they're hugely popular. I mean, Mm -hmm. major, major fad or trend or whatever you want to call it. Uh, And they're unlabeled. So you got to go to succulentguide.net, succulentguide.net, and memorize it. (laughs) It's got great illustrations, great photos. One of the most useful guides I found on the Internet for this. There's a lot of new hybrids. They've been crossing a lot of different genera of, you know, there's graptivarias and sedivarias and all these intergeneric hybrids that have been created. So learning about the hardiness is complicated. But a good starting point is to get them identified so you know what you're dealing with, and then you'll know whether they're, you can make an educated guess about whether they're cold hardy. So, um, okay, I guess that's about it. Last question. I'm looking for a hibiscus that blooms a lot and isn't a tree. We have a rose of Sharon, but that's a tree. So that would be hibiscus moscutus, the Confederate rose. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show. What's your show this week? I am going to be talking about my favorite musician, Margie Adam. Okay, and we'll be we'll be back next week. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore and Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. <laughs>